1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: This episode references substance addiction. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to The Gap. In today's episode, we ask people from two generations to discuss their experiences with addiction.
3: I pushed my daughter away because I couldn't let her see me, her dad, Mm. as I was. I say I've had 25 emergency detoxes in hospital, been rushed in. I despised who I was, what I'd become. I used to put covers over the mirrors just so I couldn't see my reflection.
2: That's Russell. An alcohol addiction took hold of him aged 30 after a bereavement, causing him to retreat from social gatherings and his job in favour of booze. Sitting down with Russell is Thomas, a former drug addict. Thomas took cocaine for the first time in his teenage years, and what started as recreational use turned into a serious addiction to ketamine. Both now in recovery, their conversation covers how substance abuse affected their lives, the lasting impact it's had on them and their loved ones, and how they got themselves on the road to recovery.
3: When was the first time you used drugs or drink? Oh,
4: alcohol the first time I used was, I was probably about 16. So sort of year 11 in school, yeah. at a snooker club, but the first time I used drugs was, I was almost 18, in Barnsley, and I took cocaine. Which, at the time, seemed like quite a, a normal drug to be yeah. taken. What about yourself?
3: I think I took my first drink when I was 15. But because I think it might be the age gap, but hmm. drugs never actually was in circulation as much. Yeah. So I've never actually taken any drugs. All right. Okay. So I've never even had to smoke weed, if I'm honest. All right, okay. Because if I was around that stuff at the time, I'd have definitely I'd have taken drugs, but I've never been offered any. Do you so not view alcohol as a drug now, or? Alcohol is definitely a drug, yeah. the worst drug. It would be. But at the used. time, alcohol was the, the thing to do. How long was your addiction? <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, like I said, I tried my first drug when I was 17, so... <sighs> Thankfully, I had years off it in between. But... Up until November the 2nd, 2018, so just before Christmas, that's when I went into rehab, and I took pretty much drugs from the age of 17 up until that point. Definitely within the last year or two was my worst. But, yeah, so what, 10, 12 years? full
3: on, properly, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Myself, I'd say it got a grip of me when I was 30, oh. so that was 18 years ago. Oh, yeah. And myself, I stopped December previous last oh, year. Okay. So. After many, many attempts. Mm. I was only drinking lager to start with, but then I started drinking the gin, and that was neat. So I was drinking like a litre of gin Jesus. within an hour, quite easily. Describe a feeling you had whilst using.
4: In the beginning, like the honeymoon period, which probably lasted for about four or five years, I fucking loved, I loved taking drugs. I loved the whole, not just the actual drug taking, but the, the whole event, the whole like getting ready, going to your friends or coming to mine, getting, getting ready or having a laugh and sort of prepping for the night out, which then ended up leading to like a full weekend out. I loved it for the first, f- I'd say
3: 10 years. Uh-huh. It was the culture, us and the lads uh-huh. around town, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, getting hammered, talking the next day, what did you get up to, what you, uh-huh. loved it. Well, I was addicted to gin. And I suppose at first, yeah, it, it, it gets you, because obviously it's a spirit, so it gets you merrier and high quicker. It's quicker to get addicted to spirits, I find, my personal opinion, than it is to lager. But the come downs are a lot quicker. The tiredness, the lethargicness, the, you get ratty. You can get quite aggressive with gin. Oh. I find out, not for me personally, because I was a home drug on my own,
4: so the only person I was getting aggressive with was myself, myself. so, but self. Oh, ketamine was like my main sort of poison. <sighs> when I first started taking ketamine, it you literally just knocked me out. like it, I think it's a, a tranquilizer for horses, so... I'm a bit yeah. like a horse, so it's, you can imagine what it does to me, so... It, I'd take it, and then I'd, like, literally pass out and get carried out of a nightclub, or have no actual record... Like, I, I would not have known what I did for the past hour or two, which would be a bad experience, which I think is referred well, it's referred to as ket K-hole, so you'd go into or a K-hole or, or other nicknames it's got, and you'd do the weird things with your hands and your legs, and you'd just sort of like a like a zombie. It also sort of, that's one experience you could have with it, or it could also make you feel really sort of happy and excited and a rush. Like I used to get a rush from it, just like you would with cocaine. It's not, a, it's not an upper, it's a downer. Yeah. So it kind of like makes you just not give a shit about anything. Kind of like a comfort blanket, is the best. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's like you're wrapped in cotton wool. From the people I spoke to in, in rehab and stuff, it's quite similar to the effects of, of heroin, how it would make you feel, which I've never tried, but. It's the same sort of warm, glowing sort of sensation that you have if you took, if you were to Erin, but you can't have those experiences, or you can't have like an out of body experience where you think things are trying to kill you and chase you. And in terms of long term effects, it will make you incontinent. Like I nearly had my bladder removed. I got, I got seriously bad. It destroys your bladder. Like I used to have cameras down my penis into my bladder to check my bladder all the time. I was told I'd be wearing a nappy for life if I'd not stopped and have a costume bag, is that what it's pronounced? One of them bags, for life. So if you lose your bladder, obviously that's in a a bad way. It sort of quenched your hunger, appetite, just desire for life. You didn't want anything apart from drugs. I'd happily choose drugs over ketamine, over anything, over anything. Not just the physical effects, but the psychological damage was, Horrendous, even still now, like sometimes I still suffer from certain psychological illnesses, if you want to call it that. But yeah, it just, just I wouldn't <laughs> advise it to anybody. But I think a lot of people are scared of it. I was scared of it when I first started trying to take it, and then I ended up loving it. But yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. Kind of like being hit around the head with a baseball bat, I'd imagine. It, it just. Yeah, uh, I think what a lot of people don't realise about alcohol, because I have what cirrhosis mm. of the liver and a fatty
3: fatty pancreas, Mm -hmm. and that's all just down to drink. And being in the hospital until then, you've got a month left left to live because of this drink. The first thing I did was off license as soon as I got discharged from hospital. That's all for welcome. It's it's also, (laughs) like you say, it's the mental side Mm -hmm. it all. That takes the
4: longest to recover than your body. Because the liver repairs itself Mm -hmm. if you stop. Just before Christmas, I like weighed seven stone. Like, went through. When I'm six foot, but mentally, I'm still working on that every day. So I won't advise it to anybody. <laughs> but <sighs> I, I enjoyed it in the beginning. That's that's the scary thing about it. You don't actually realise that you, you're an addict. I think when you're in that phase, where you are enjoying it, and especially to the places where I was going, I mean, it was socially acceptable to take coke or ketamine off a line of table in a bar, just as much as it was to go and order a a comfort or something mm-hmm. like that. So. It, in them sort of environments, it's it's normal to take drugs. But I'd say for the last five or six years, it hasn't been enjoyable at all. But for the first few years, it was. But like anything, the first few years are good.
3: Yeah. And you say then, bone,
2: it?
4: then the addiction takes hold and then you're fucked. But yeah,
3: about yourself. Until I started drinking at home and drinking the gin neat, I was lost. I was totally lost in myself. I hated myself. I absolutely despised who I was. Mm. I was so angry with myself, that I just couldn't see a way out of it. Mm. I thought, there's no, I've tried and tried. I said, I actually wanted to die from it. But when I was in hospital, I was up, and I one not going to revive me. Because mm. right. I, I was lost, I was just so upset with myself. I pushed my daughter away because I couldn't let her see me, her dad, mm. as I was. I say I've had 25 emergency detoxes in hospital, been rushed in. So I, I just hated it, I just, I'd given up. I stopped loving myself, that was the main thing, I stopped loving myself. I hate, I despised who I was, what I'd become. I used to put covers over the mirrors just so I couldn't see my reflection because I hated I myself so much.
4: It's really weird, to see, because I enjoyed it, like I said, and it was quite an event to do it. And then towards the end, I went from, like, being going out and, and doing things, like going out to, to nightclubs and stuff, and, and actually doing it in a social manner, yeah. to then sat in my apartment, not answering my phone, closing the curtains, not opening for days, wallowing in self-pity and consuming more and more drugs to try and make myself feel better. Such a thin line mm. from going from me loving it to... Yeah, and the problem is, as well, when you reach that point you can't stop, like you've already, because you yeah. kind of, you're enjoying it, you kind of don't want to stop, but then when you realise that you need to stop, it's impossible to stop, because as odd as it sounds, it's the thing that makes you feel, it, shut, it used to shut my head up, yeah. so like I couldn't function until I had it. How did your addiction affect your family? At the start,
3: not too much, not too much, because I could control it, and I was a secret drinker, Right. off, so I thought. But <laughs> turned out everybody did know. My father didn't want anything to do with me for a good few years. My, mom, my mother died when she was 56, so she didn't get to see the the height of my addiction. Mm. She realised she did realise I, I was getting a problem, but she didn't see the extent that I was getting into. And horrible to say, but fortunately mm. she died before she saw the actual mess I got into. My wife, she's left me. I've got a 19-year-old daughter now, a number on to make she
4: realised when she was, I'd say about eight or nine, had a drink problem. To be honest, I kind of hid myself away as well. I wasn't a secret drug taker as such, because I'd, I'd go out and I'd, I'd take it a lot, but I kind of isolated away from my family. So it was, Then everybody really saw me, especially in the beginning towards the end, it's a completely different story, but, yeah. and unfortunately drugs was first and foremost, it was ketamine, I loved ketamine. And then it was make time for my, my yeah. girlfriend or, my nephew or my mom or my brothers and sister or whatever it was but it destroys relationships especially after like i was with a girl for for a good few number of years so after a point they kind of give up on you as well and and, and you need that as well you kind of need that impact on, on on a relationship especially if it's trying to be a loving relationship it's, yeah. it's not advisable <laughs> but yeah, it's difficult yeah. what was the telltale sign for those around you that were using i used to be really outgoing
3: i used to be out every night and being a pool team, going round and visit families. And I became unsociable because I was a secret drinker. So I knew if I had to go out, then I couldn't drink the amount I wanted to. So I was cancelling family visits, parties, engagement, whatever whatever it was, so I could be alone and sit at home and drink. And I think that's when people started to say, why are you coming? Because I'd have to have about 20 cans before I even got there. Because of the amount I was drinking, I was drinking like five pints of their one. It started to get a bit embarrassing when I was drinking that much. So that's when it, they realised
4: I stopped getting invited in the end, because I kept <laughs> turning them down all the time. So? Yourself? Obviously the physical side, like the amount of weight that I lost was obviously an obvious sign, but I think the fact I just stopped being happy, I stopped enjoying life. I've always led quite an active lifestyle, I've always took part in loads of stuff, hobbies and stuff that I enjoy and I kind of stopped doing things that made me happy. Family was the main thing, I'm always really close to my family and I just stopped ringing them, stopped answering the calls, didn't go to events and even when I did I'd just be an absolute mess. I think like you said, just isolation, I think, but it's kind of hard to recognise that as well if you don't see someone, it's a bit weird but yeah, I just I just stopped being happy. And I've always been really not stupidly giddy and annoyingly happy. And then when I'm yeah. not, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> did your friends and family try to intervene? My friends, no,
3: because I pushed them away. Because the amount I was drinking, I had to drink at home. It was too expensive to drink in the pubs. The amount I was drinking, <laughs> so I actually did push them away. I refused mm-hmm. phone calls and just so I could sit on my own and drink. So. They didn't have a choice. They couldn't help because I I wouldn't let them. My father, he tried to intervene, but in my eyes the wrong way. Um. Screaming in my face saying, man up, man up, why can't you just stop? By that time, (laughs) if I I just stopped, I'd be dead because of the amount I was drinking. My mum said, you've always got a can near Andrews. So in that way, but it was only months later that she actually passed away all the time why what is it that's making you drink every other month I had a different reason I could (laughs) say well my mum died when she was quite young and everyone idolised my mum stressful job I used to blame that My relationship, my wife I could blame that I could just blame anything I just didn't love myself I say I blame so many different things and the only real true reason is because I didn't like myself Mm. and I, I needed to put that persona out that I'm alright, mm. I'm happy all the time. But you needed more to drink to create that persona that I've given out there. And nobody actually understands addiction unless you're actually in it. Mm. It's very hard for somebody to help you unless you've actually been through it. Mm. So, how
4: about yourself? Um, it's, it's difficult because most of my friends are also like raging drug addicts, so it's quite difficult. Like I have true friends as well that, that obviously want the best for me and, and to be honest a lot of my friends that are still caught up in addiction They still want the best for me, but together it should you probably know yourself. Yeah. It's a bad idea if I was if I was clean for a while and I went and met a friend and they were using then I'd, I'd be straight within 10 minutes using Or I'd even probably pick up drugs on the way to meet them because that's that's all we ever know And yeah. um, we'd go to a pub and then it'd just be I need drugs or anything it didn't matter where I was but my family have always tried to intervene but no-one can stop you from taking drugs unless you want to stop taking drugs. And the problem is, for years, I didn't want it. I couldn't find a way out of it. But, yeah, they tried to help, but it's difficult when most of your friends are caught up. My family, like, my mum, she interviewed my brothers, my sister, but even my nephew and stuff like that, but... Unless you want to stop taking drugs, no-one's going to stop you. No. And my family never stopped me, my friends didn't stop me. I had to stop, so it's difficult.
3: Yeah, totally agree. Uh.
5: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: What did you do for a job?
3: I was a caravan fitter. All right. Yeah, in Hull. When I started there in 1990. They released me. Let me go. In 2017. Right, okay. So 27, 28 years I was working there. And I loved it. It was well, well paid job. But the addiction started to affect my job by mm. me either not turning in or I was always thinking of an excuse. Because we finished the apples for about three o'clock. I thought, what can I do to go home? Because I needed that drink. Because I never drank at work, but I needed that drink. I went as far as to go say so like put orange peel in my eye and say I've got conjunctivitis. I'll have to go home, you know what I mean? Just to get that drink. I ended up just, I was losing that much weight. My belt on my jeans had to mm. get putting new holes in it you know, to get it round. And I ended up just going to the the big boss and just saying, look, I've got a problem. I said, I'm an alcoholic. And they've been fantastic. Cause I've been there that long, I think. It was fantastic. And so they said, get yourself home. Mm sort yourself out well I was home for a year (laughs) 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 I finally managed to go back two weeks (laughs) and fell back again started drinking again and this happened for like two or three years they kept Mm. letting me come back and in the end I because I was a loyal worker and I actually went to them and said look we're going to have to let me go I said because it's the guilt as well of letting you lock down I said it's also affecting
4: me so I think we're better part ways I worked as a business development executive for an outdoor, private outdoor educational company. So I was addicted as much to my career as I was to drugs because I could always justify being a drug addict because I had such a good job, because I had money, I had a beautiful place to live in, I had all those nice things that I could sort of even to my mum, my mum would be like, You need help. And I'd go, like, No, it's fine. I, I've got a job. Like most people I know in addiction, or the stigma is that most people in addiction don't have jobs. Yeah. But I had a hugely successful career, which kept me clean. And, and I loved the company I worked for. And when I got never done it, I felt a lot of, I felt betrayed. But throughout my time there, I, my career did keep me clean for a lot of that. Obviously, on weekends and when I went out, it was a different story, but it never really affected my job. And I never, even at social events, that I went to with work, I never drank or anything like that. So probably on the whole of it, they probably didn't even yeah. realise that I had an addiction. And some of the people I've told now like where I am and, and everything else and I've told them the true story, they're like, I can't believe that like, you take drugs because no you don't drink. So a lot of people were quite shocked and maybe some probably weren't, but I held down a, a successful career for a very long time before obviously I was made redundant and then that's when I went crazy. But in fairness, it's worked out for the best. I think I kind of cared too much about my career because it was the only sort of sense of normality that I had. Like, I could relate to people if I went to a social event by saying, I've got a job, (laughs) because then they'd never suspect me of being a drug addict. So it was a bit like a, I guess, wearing camouflage sometimes, having a career like I did. Describe the feeling you had a week sober. My first actual week was probably when I went into rehab. So... Uh, 2nd or 3rd of November that week last year. It it wasn't easy. (laughs) I'd like to say it was fun, but it wasn't at all. I never detoxed as well when I went into rehab, so I just went from taking drugs and I took copious amounts of drugs before I went in as well, so the first week I was just full of, I think, fear, guilt, regret, in denial as well a lot. I was like, I'm not a drug addict. I just had a little bit of it. I just liked taking drugs. I wasn't really a drug addict. And I'd sort of justify the drug that I took it wasn't maybe as bad as other drugs, but there's no difference between the substance whatsoever. And that's no. something that I learned all the time. My first week was, <laughs> was hell. <laughs> the first few months of being clean was hell. Even like, I'm nine, nine and a half months clean. And even now, like I'm still quite a, a baby in terms of rec- like recovery time, but yeah, hard. Very hard, especially in an environment where, in rehab, there's other people that are further on. There's people that are detoxing. Yeah. There's people that have just come in. There's people that have been clean X amount of months. So it's, it, it, although it's an amazing environment, it, it's extremely difficult and it's a challenging environment. And the place that I went into, a place called Phoenix Futures, they, it's a behavioural program, yeah, so it's yeah. extremely challenging. I know it, yeah, um, Phoenix, very challenging. So it was, it was difficult, and especially being a drug addict, you don't really like people telling you what to do. I never liked that, even as a kid. Um, I was sort of anti authority. And when you go into rehab, you've got a structure, there's a regime. And I never, people didn't really tell me what to do anyway. So I, I hated that. And I hated all the, the chaos and everything yeah. else that I'd caused that still, t- still sinks in now. But, and giving up my phone was yeah, probably as yeah. much as difficult as giving up drugs. So, I had to give my phone up. I had no contact. I never, con- the only phone call I made was the first day I arrived. And that was literally just to phone my mum, just to tell her that I'd arrived um, safely. And then I didn't speak to her for about two weeks because if I had, I'd have probably left. No. I, don't,
3: I don't know if he said anything to do with Alcohol because mine was completely different. Right. I <laughs> loved it. I went away to Bradford for, just for, for a detox, two right, weeks. Yeah. And I loved every. I didn't want to leave. I loved every minute of it because mm. I knew once the alcohol was out of my system because mm. I'm quite a happy person mm. anyhow and I knew once the alcohol was out of my system and it was done safely, I was getting Librium, mm. right, a bit librium. and I was just back to my old self after a day or two and I just loved it, I thought I'm free of that again because mm. I've tried before in hospital obviously being but in hospital it's a different scenario you're in there three or four days and then mm. you're out this is a slow nine, ten days of Librium so I knew that, I had that in my head and it was just to socialise again as well because I'd been in my, just stuck in one room all by myself and I was just right. so miserable. So once that alcohol was out of my system and I could socialise with like-minded people in addiction like myself because say two weeks here all roughly about the same, yeah. same time him in there. And I just, I just just loved it. Did you go through the
4: DTs and stuff like that as well, or
3: did you? DT? No, no, the Librium match takes away all the DTs. Right, Okay. Any side effects that you get, that takes it all away. So, yeah, after a day, I was just, I was waking up fresh.
4: I wish (laughs) I had... Appetite back. I didn't sleep. The first night I arrived, I slept, because I'd not slept for about three three days, because I was just, I went crazy on drugs, because I knew it was, like, my last sort of binge uh, before I went into rehab. So... I, I kept on waking up in like cold sweats and I'd be, I'd kept on, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, right, I need drugs. And like, it, it's a routine that I had for so long that first thing in the morning, especially for the last six months of like before I went into rehab, I'd literally be up scanning Facebook to see which drug dealers are awake or where I could go and get drugs. And then I had all that anxiety of, oh, shit, I can't phone somebody to get drugs. Like, I yeah, need drugs. Yeah. And then there's, like, the, there's a med room, and then people are on detox as well, and they're like, just crazy thoughts. Like, if I break into the med room, they've got Valium. But yeah, it was, yeah. It was hard. Like, I didn't start to feel normal for a few months. Like, I started to get feelings. I'm quite a sensitive and emotional guy anyway, but I started to actually feel normal. Like, I, I didn't feel, like, it's hard to be fuzzy or not truly... That must it. be a difference between withdrawal from alcohol and... <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Apparently there's and... no withdrawal from ketamine but I can assure you there is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was hard. Plus I was still physically very ill. I had numerous problems, like physically plus obviously mentally as well. So I suffered in crowds, I suffered with so like social anxiety, being in, in open spaces, fear of not having drugs, fear of going to sleep and not... not waking up to get drugs or going to bed on drugs. Right. So it was, it was hard for the first few months, it was really hard. Despite the programme and, and like, the amazing things that I, I got out of rehab, but, you know, it was... It, <laughs> is, it is scary,
3: thinking life, life without your addiction. Mm. It is terrifying. Finding yourself again,
2: mm. <laughs> that's well, the yeah.
3: scary part. <laughs> that's the journey, isn't it? What motivated
4: you to go into recovery? There wasn't one particular point where I thought, oh, shit, I need to stop taking drugs, or that I need help. But yeah, it was a, an accumulation of a load of different events that ultimately led to me going into rehab. But my mum being the main thing, yeah. and my family and my ex-relationship, because I realised how much I affected them. And I thought, fuck, this isn't, this isn't me. And my mum never raised me to be like that.
3: Oh, I tried stopping <laughs> for my wife to save my marriage. Oh, that's wrong, wasn't it? <laughs> I tried, I've tried <laughs> for my daughter, because I had lads. My daughter. Yeah. My we did everything together until my addiction kicked in. Football. You name it. We, me and I was best buddies. We did everything together. I tried to stop for my job. I just
2: couldn't,
3: mm. couldn't stop for anything. And then somebody, I, I can't even remember his name, he said to me, why don't you think you deserve to be happy? Mm. And I went, what? He said, why don't you think you deserve to be happy? And, and to be honest, I couldn't answer him it was, it was dazing. It was just going on. In my head and, thought, and I thought, Yeah, I do deserve to be happy. And I actually was talking to him the next week, and he said, so what are you going to do then? How will you become happy? I said, I've got to kick this high. And that was the moment by him saying, you deserve to be happy. And that's what I say to all the people that I know now in addiction, because I go to a lot of recovery groups, and I also talk in a lot of them. And I say to them, you deserve to be happy for yourself. Once you're happy for yourself, the rest will follow, your family will follow, they'll be happy, but you can only do it for yourself. You have to
4: be happy before anybody else. They call it, in recovery, they call it self-actualisation, where you realise that you actually deserve to be better for yourself because there was obviously a part of me that wanted to go into rehab to make it better for my family, but ultimately that never worked before. My family never kept me clean. Didn't stop you. My ex-girlfriend never kept me clean. My job never kept me clean. Nothing ever kept me clean, especially me. So they're not going to do it now. So I kind of realised that... I need to change before everything else is going to change so my family will get better ultimately if I change. And it wasn't until I realised that no one deserves to live a life full of addiction, it's a shit life. And it's a hard life to maintain. So yeah, I think when you realise that you're actually worth it and you have a bit of self-belief, because I think in in addiction we all feel worthless. And we all walk around like, feeling like shit all the time, which doesn't help, so. The amount of people I've met in rehab that have, have come in for the wives or the girlfriends or the brothers and the sisters and new nearly... I was one of them. And then a month later, they're, they're out and they've, they've got that relationship back with so the wife or whatever and then they relapse a week later. And it's like, you have to be selfish and you recovery and You have to do it for yourself. Because if you don't, then no-one else is going to be happy either. No, nothing's mm-hmm. going to ever change. You need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the common misconception of addiction? Most people get into addiction
3: to block things out to hide from things. So I think when people are really heavy into addiction, it does annoy me when people say, nah, just stop you doing it. If you see the people on the streets, the homeless people, Mm. or people, whoever, and when they are in that much of a mess, do people actually think, oh, they want to be like that? Mm. Nobody wants to be an addict. It's a slippery slope, and
4: you just become an addict overnight sometimes. Yeah, I think you mentioned about the stigma I think everybody assumes that if you're an addict that I don't know even saying it, but like you're homeless and you're around and you're stealing, you're robbing people and starving people for money to feed your addiction and it's not like everybody, addiction doesn't really care about the individual or the person, all it cares about is that you feed it drugs and it is a bit, I think more and more, as much as I hate to say this, but the more celebrities that seem to go to rehab, the stigma is a little bit lessened because oh, they're a nice guy Like being an addict doesn't mean that you're a a bad person. It probably means that you've experienced a lot of, you might have had a lot of, a lot like of trauma, childhood yeah. experiences yeah. or a lot of traumatic experiences, like you said, but it, I think everybody just thinks as soon as you mention drugs or you're a drug addict, it's just the stigmatisation that's attached to it. They just don't want nothing to do with you. And you're already marginalised as it is being an addict. So when you're already in that little bracket and then people are keeping you at arm's distance even more, it actually makes the problem worse. How has addiction affected your social status? In the beginning, it probably in, in heightened my experience, like, my, my social status. I was, I was quite popular, and then when I got involved in drugs and, and stuff like that, I was even more popular. In the beginning, I, I, I don't like saying this, but it, it actually made it better, because I'd be invited to more events, I'd be invited to more social stuff, I'd be people coming around to my house all the time. It became such a... A key element of my social life, the addiction. Um, But in the end, I wasn't invited to things that (laughs) I probably were invited to before. And even if I was, I wouldn't go because of the fact that I wore that label above my head being a drug addict. And I'd always be anxious about going out as it is, regardless of having to try and act normal for a few hours as well. So, yeah, in the beginning, it made it better, but it made it far, far, far worse in the end. Far worse. Going
3: round town every weekend. We mm. used to go in the same pubs, drinking, getting hammered. So we knew everybody. So our status was, it was quite high. And mm. I must admit, I thrived off it. Pulling beds and <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thrived on it. Then it started to take its toll. And like I say, I won't get invited anywhere. I didn't have no status because I was at home. So I didn't have, I were quite close to all my family. and They didn't want anything to do with me because of my drink. So I didn't have no social status. But now no. I've stopped. It, it is, it's all coming back now. And what we're working with voluntarily for other addicts. I've got friends and, and my social status is now coming back up now. Mm. Now I've stopped drinking. So now I'm getting invited to all the bar- the very usual things, the barbecues, the weddings. All the, things and, you know, all the things I want. And now I can go there with a sober face. And they're all saying, I'm so proud of you.
4: Why do you want to tell your story?
3: Why? <sighs> I need reminding of how bad it actually was. Because some days I do think, do you know, this has been a doddle, this. This has been so easy, this recovery, like. So I do need days like this to, to help me. And I mm. I, need, I want to get the message out there that alcohol, Its, it's class is okay, it's sold everywhere you can get
4: cheap ciders, it will get you eventually, mm. if you've got an addictive personality like myself. In order for us to change and, and to tackle addiction, and we need to really start talking about it. It's portrayed a lot like, it's cool to take drugs, yeah. Well, it's, it's not, it's not cool to take drugs at all. But yeah, I get a lot of people asking me for help in terms of even just someone to speak to, because they can tell me about how much they're using and what it is that they're doing and everything else that, that comes with it like, like psychologically. And I can relate to that. Whereas if I spoke to a normal person and I'd be like, I can't get out of bed without taking drugs, they'd be like, sure, you're just going through a phase. (laughs) I'm like, "Mm." but it's good to to speak about it. I'm
3: on the phone or getting texts every single night of people. And a lot of time, when I'm on the phone, I don't actually say anything. Because I remember when I was in addiction, I just wanted to be heard. Because sometimes they're in an answer. I can't give them an answer. Only they know the answer. I give them advice. But they just want to be heard a lot of time. Because a lot of the time, they're not heard. Addicts are heard.
4: What do you do now, in terms of your recovery? Well, I'm volunteering now. And I've just took an exam,
3: so hopefully... And time to come, because I think I've got to be two years clean before I start working at Renew from home. Mm-hmm. So hopefully... I'll get a job there and I'll just carry on as them. I, I just smile every day because I'm finally happy and I'm starting to love myself as mm. well.
4: I think the thing that I do now is, one of the best things is I've got like, I guess more of an inner peace. Like I feel more comfortable in myself, whereas before I just, I, I hated feeling normal. I do things now which I enjoy and I do it because I enjoy it. Whereas before I do it, just had to do yeah. it. Yeah, That's exactly. the difference, I'm in yeah. control to a certain extent of my life now. Um, and I'm not controlled by addiction anymore, which is which is key. We've both um, got choices now. Yeah, I have a Where choice. before in addiction, you've got no choice. <laughs> yeah, so I think I'm just happy. I'm miles happier than I've ever been. Yeah. Which is weird because drugs made me happy. But yeah. but yeah, man, I think that's what it does for me now. it yeah. been great <laughs> to meet you, mate. <laughs> no,
2: Next week, we hear the accounts of two sportsmen living with disabilities. From Nick Hamilton, a racing driver who was born with cerebral palsy, and John Stubbs, a Paralympic archer who survived a traumatic road accident in 1989, changing his life as he knew it. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss this one.
0: Constantly being looked
2: at on a daily basis. Kids staring at you when you are growing up. And even now, adults, you know, looking at you up and down when you're walking. You know, that hurts you mentally. Bullying, all that sort of stuff hurts you mentally. Everyone struggles mentally. I think life is 90% mental, Definitely. 10% physical.
3: Yeah, that's the same in, in sport.
2: In, in in absolutely anything. Yeah. If someone says that they don't struggle mentally, they're lying. Yeah. From Lad Bible, you've been listening to The Gap. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this week's episode, Check the show notes for some helpful links. Thanks go to Russell and Thomas for their willingness to share their stories with us.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.